Welcome back to another episode of Believe in the Press Row, a very special Corona edition. I mean, every Corona edition is a special one, but this one is uh, exceptionally special. Uh, those of you who know, we typically focus on sports media here and leave a lot of the talk about sports to the so-called experts. But um, we are in unusual times, to say the least. And uh, I'm very pleased and privileged to be joined today by a friend of the a friend of mine and a friend of the families for a very long time. Uh, my history with this individual goes back uh, to the early 1980s, though I think my family's goes much farther back than that. And the sunny shores of, of South Tea Lake up in Algonquin Park, um, where I was once stranded on a canoe trip in a very bad storm on Smoke Lake. And I saw an individual standing up on the shores in a very greeny yellow poncho, waving me and my campers in. And we got a, uh, an unprecedented rescue and meal while we waited out a storm. Uh, you all know him as the, the concussion doctor, the guru of concussions in the National Hockey League. Um, he is Dr. Charles Tatter. Charles, how are you? I'm good today, Jonah. Pleasure seeing you. Likewise, it's, uh, it's been a long time. Uh, let me just read a little bit from your bio here. Um, Dr. Charles Tatter is a Canadian neurosurgeon at Toronto Western Hospital and a professor of neurosurgery at the University of Toronto. Uh, his work has transformed the understanding of spinal cord injuries and concussions. In 1992, he founded Think First Canada, an injury Pre prevention foundation now merged into Parachute Canada where he is a board member. He's an officer of the Order of Canada and has been inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, the Terry Fox Hall of Fame, the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, and the USA Hockey's Excellence in Safety Awards. Uh, that is a very long and impressive bio. He is also, uh, besides being a really good guy, a parent, I assume grandparent. Um, yes. Still cottager in Algonquin Park. He, uh, he also managed to make uh, good enemies of one Don Cherry, uh, and I will say for all the right reasons. Um, for those who don't know, uh, when I started this, this here website and blog, it start, you know, when I was really just writing for fun and, and just to blow off steam at the every, every day, uh, you were holding some type of symposium in Toronto back in 2005, and um, my kids were playing hockey at the time, both at North Toronto, I think maybe Forest Hill. And uh, I wrote about your symposium coming up and numerous members of the Toronto media who I had no clue were reading the garbage that I was putting out every night, jumped in and said to me, wow, that's actually really impressive. Thank you for calling that out. And that was really the start of this blog. Uh, that is the first time we really generated an audience and the rest, as they say, is history. In a couple of words, um, first of all, I, mean, I got a question completely unrelated. I know you as Husky Tatter. Where did the nickname Husky come from? Well, my real first name is Charles, and my father didn't like that name. It was too formal. I was a very, um, you know, sports-minded uh, kind of competitive kid, and the name Charles didn't suit the person. So my father call, started to call me Husky 
uh, probably because my Jewish name, my Hebrew name, is Yecheskel, which uh, in English is really Haskell. So my second name is now Haskell, very formal, but it really stands for, for Yecheskel or Haskell, and it became Husky. And a few cousins of mine were all named after the same grandfather who emigrated from Austria a long time ago. So there are about four Huskies in my family with, uh, because my grandfather, in fact, was uh, Charles. In fact, uh, you know, he, he, in fact, died at the hospital in which I worked. So I go back a long way in Toronto. Our roots are, are here. And are you still, how active are you still today in the medical community? I'm still practicing. Uh, my practice is really focused on concussions and spinal injuries um, in sports um, in particular, but also from motor vehicle crashes or falls among seniors or injuries at work. So concussions and spinal injuries are still a major focus of mine. And I, I still have a laboratory are still trying to discover how to treat paralysis. Like that really started me off because my, um, my early days were when I was exposed to kids who ended up in a wheelchair because of playing sports. Like that was just so aggravating to me and bothersome because I, I love sports and and then when i became a neurosurgeon i was faced with the task of trying to put people back together again after catastrophic injuries either to the brain or to the spine and imagine sports what i love to do causing such havoc and that really just didn't sit right with me and that got me into prevention. So I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, you know, given the times that we're in, uh, hopefully you're not seeing any sports related injuries right now. Uh, well, that's, that is true. Um, that it's a remarkable reduction in injuries. In fact, during this uh, epidemic pandemic that we're now in uh, kids just aren't playing as much as they used to. They're not allowed to congregate. Team sports are pretty well uh, off the table in in our area, and um, and we're not seeing as many injuries. So that's probably the only benefit. Uh, the trauma is down while we're all confined to homes. Are you uh, are you still going into the hospital? Um, my colleagues said I'm too old. They didn't say I didn't. I I didn't use the word old. I used the word word older, but they said do not come. In fact, the Prime Minister of Canada said go home and stay home if you're over the age of sixty, and I certainly am. So that's what I'm doing. Okay. Well. Lots to talk about. And again, I really appreciate your time today. Um, for those of you who like to read, you really should check out 
Bob McKenzie has an amazing book out called Everyday Hockey Heroes. And you wrote one of the chapters in that book. And right. uh, the chapter that you, that you read, that you wrote, I should say, has an awesome quote in it, which I think is pretty appropriate to why I reached out to you. Uh, there's a quote here from somebody that says, it's always better to prevent an injury than to try and repair it after the fact. And I called you last week and I said, look, I know nothing about concussions. I've coached, I've played hockey. I've held my bell rung a few times myself. Uh, I coached my kids. And at one point, uh, I was also the trainer for, for my team's, my son's team. Um, but the one thing I know right now is that, as you just said, nobody's playing. So one thought that I had, and, and we talked about it briefly, was that in, there could be a benefit that nobody's playing. One, anybody who's injured or recovering uh, doesn't have the pressure of trying to get back too early, which is always a good thing. But my question to you then and is now, um, even though I know the answer, uh, I think it's helpful, is what, you know, under, under the umbrella of what can we be doing that's positive into this situation to take advantage of the fact that we're not playing? Uh, my question to you was, Baseline testing is a big thing, at least here in the States. It's pushed by a lot of youth sports entities as a benefit of enrollment. So when you sign up to play in their league, they include a, a test, a benchmark test. Um, that was my question to you is like, how, how do we try and get some type of silver lining from the fact that nobody's doing squat? Uh, nobody's getting their bells rung. Nobody's being pressured to toughen it up and come back. Are there things that we can be doing if we're otherwise healthy? Uh, first and then second of all, you know, if we're recovering, what can we be doing? Cause we can't go out. Well, those are great questions and wouldn't it be great if we did take the opportunity to stress uh, prevention. And if, if you think about concussions, we, the way we, the way we try to prevent concussions is to make everybody knowledgeable about what a concussion is, how to prevent them, and what happens if you get one? What should you do? So all of that could be grist for the mill of learning while we're waiting to play the sports again. And in Canada, we've been quite aggressive about promotion of prevention. We've had some really unfortunate mishaps. One in particular that is, is uh, named after um, Rowan Stringer. So Rowan Stringer was a 15-year-old kid, captain of her rugby team, and she was playing for an Ottawa uh, school, her high school in Ottawa, back in 2013 and she sustained a concussion on a Friday and then another one on on the following Monday and then by Wednesday she got a catastrophic brain injury from which she did not recover and she was found at an inquest into her death that was actually suggested by me 
because I, I just smelled that there was something there that didn't, the, you know, get attended to properly. That, that was, in other words, that was a preventable death in my view. And when we went into it in detail as a result of the inquest, because with all inquests, uh, a detective is assigned by the coroner to figure out why this person died, gather information. And when he did, he downloaded Rowan Stringer's uh, cell phone and found on the cell phone the details of her concussions that preceded her death. We call this the second impact syndrome. And it means that, especially with a young person, if you get if you get a concussion and you don't withdraw yourself from action and then you get another concussion before your brain has recovered that is a recipe for disaster the recovering brain does not tolerate the next hit to the head and that's exactly what happened to poor rowan and and you've had the same thing in the us in the U.S., the similar person is Zachary Leistet in the state of Washington, um, somewhere around Seattle. I've just forgotten where. And he was playing football and had a preceding hit to the head and then ended up with getting a catastrophic second brain injury. And... The state of Washington got busy and said, this will not happen again, and enacted the first concussion law. And that was back, I think, in about 2009, something like that. So his, and injury, his injury was in 2006. 2006. So after that, it was enacting... Sorry, that's my son. <laughs> In fact, I think my son, who's, who just called me on the telephone, was your counselor. He was my Camp counselor. That is true. Michael. Yes, he was. Um, so, Zachary Leistet's um, parents and the doctors involved, Zachary did survive his major brain injury, but Rowan Stringer didn't survive. And those injuries both led to laws. In Zachary's case, it was a landslide of states after that. In fact, I think I'm right in saying that all 50 states Correct. now have concussion laws. In Canada, we passed our first concussion law named after Rowan Stringer in 2018. Ooh. And um, we're still the only province in Canada, the province of Ontario, that has concussion laws. And those laws state that everybody has to learn about concussion. Everybody has to be on guard to recognize when somebody has had a concussion. And that sort of brings me to the idea of concussion prevention being a team sport, because the, by law, the team has the, the team for prevention of concussion consists of the players themselves have to 
own up to the fact that they have received a hit to the head, that they're dizzy or having headaches or any of the 65 or so symptoms that a concussion can cause. And the parents have to learn about concussion too so that they can help recognize when their kid has had a hit to the head that is you know, causing continuing symptoms. Teachers have to know all about it. So it's part of the concussion laws. We have teachers who have to be clued in about when one of their kids may have had a concussion. Referees, school administrators, like the school secretary. My, my daughter is a school teacher and when someone gets a hit on the head, the kid goes to the office. Well, the school, the school secretary has to know what a concussion is all about and, and on and on. So the, the concussion law tries to educate everybody. In addition to that, the concussion law has do's and don'ts for players. And in Canada, you mentioned, you know, my involvement with an organization called Parachute Canada, which is an injury prevention organization. And Parachute went into great detail to develop concussion laws and regulations that are sport specific. So each sport has a different set of guidelines for how to prevent a concussion. Like it's different, uh, obviously. Hockey is different from football. Uh, they're different from rugby, different from soccer, different from horseback riding. There are even specific issues about horseback riding that obviously don't pertain to other sports. So parachute has had about 45 different sports come forward and say, okay, we're, we're signing up for this. We'll write our own rules about how to prevent concussions in our sport. And furthermore, how to deal with a concussion that has already happened. So we call this, you know, management. That's the medical term, Man manage the case which means make the right diagnosis. So if you're an emergency doctor, family physician, pediatrician, on and on and on, you have to know what a concussion is. And when we started all this, you know that some medical schools weren't even teaching doctors about how to recognize and diagnose a concussion. So that's now pretty well universal. Every medical school is teaching doctors about concussion. And we, you know, seldom get the story that we used to get. Like I went to the family doctor and he said, no, it's not a concussion. And then the headaches got worse. So he started vomiting, went to the emergency and the emergency doctor said, oh, you definitely had a concussion. So that doesn't happen very often anymore, but it used to because we all weren't on the same page. Um, and, so the diagnosis is better. And also the fact that there's sports specific rules that has made a big difference. And the return to play issue is very important. So when you get a concussion, how do you tell that you're ready to go back into action? That's a very important part of concussion management because we just said if you go back 
too soon, it could be catastrophic because of the second impact syndrome business. So you have to, you have to show that your brain is healed before you can go back. So that brings us to one of the questions you asked a few minutes ago, and that is, you know, should we spend our time during the COVID downtime and teach kids about baseline? Should we get the parents to, to go for baseline? Well, we, there's a lot of controversy about baseline testing. Some of us believe that with kids, don't bother because a kid at 14 is different from that same kid when they're 15. So let me, so, let me just interrupt you for one quick second. Sure. So just to confirm baseline testing, the theory, I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on TV, but the, the theory as I understand it is that it would be helpful. It could be helpful for doctors to know or medical experts to know how badly how bad a concussion is for a person if they had a better idea what that person looked like without a concussion. I, well, I would that, imagine it's I would imagine it's similar if you break your right wrist, they X-ray your left one uh, so they can see what you look like normally, kind of. So if you had an idea, if you had a, an ability, the theory I assume is that if we know how your brain looks without the trauma, if we compare it to what it's at now, then we can tell you A, whether you have one and B, how bad it is and how far you are from getting back to what normal state. Is that at least the right theory? Uh, well, that's what is used to sell baseline testing for okay. those who make a living yep. from selling baseline testing. That's what they would like you to believe that they have a way to take a snapshot of a kid's ability yep. and use that to compare with what they're like afterwards. Okay. Concussion. So the theory doesn't hold water and it doesn't hold water because kids change. Okay. And if you're a parent, you know that over a period of a few months, your kid, especially you know, when, when they're in that age group, let's say of uh, 10 to 18 or so, when they're sopping up new knowledge, when they're learning new sports, when they're doing, that's because the brain is so receptive during growth and development to new things, uh, how to ride a bike, uh, how to get on a scooter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of that is is being packed away in your brain. You learn um, both, you know, physical activities. You learn how to throw a baseball, how to hit, how to shoot a puck, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, all through your brain, and the brain is growing. New connections are being made as we speak with kids especially. Every time you learn something, it's a new connection. It's a new bit packed away in your brain. And so the snapshot of six months ago is useless 
to compare with now. Um, so, and it costs a lot of money to, to baseline test kids. We would rather use free methods of teaching kids about concussion. We would rather spend time going over proper behavior in a sport. Each sport should have a code of behavior, a code of conduct. That's what they should be learning. In hockey, for example, don't use your elbow as a battering ram. No elbow should be intentionally flung at an opponent's head. No shoulders to the head. That's out. We don't want to see violent behavior on the ice. Don't hit someone into the boards from behind. And on and on and on. That's what we should be stressing during this downtime and not unproven baseline testing and learning the code of conduct and learning injury prevention strategies should be emphasized during the downtime. So just to reiterate, um, there's nothing physical that we could help our kids with right now that would help them in a preventative manner because they're not engaging in the sport. I mean, well, I, they, go ahead. You know, they can be exercising. Yeah, they, they can be uh, building up their muscle mass. They can be doing things to improve their coordination. But there's nothing specific that would help them prevent getting a concussion. Not to my way of thinking. Okay. Not, uh, you know, not, and certainly it's not going to be baseline testing that will act as a useful prevention device. So, I mean, I will tell you from my experience, both in the last five years in Canada and certainly more frequently here in the States, the youth sport organizations and the schools actually do a pretty good job of educating. Um, nice. Both, both I'm the, glad to hear that. Both the parent and the player. I mean, when you register here in the States for USA hockey to play and you have to, no matter where you play, you have to register. The athlete has to take a, and it, listen, it's not rocket science, uh, but they have to take a brief aptitude test on, concussions in order to get their meal ticket isn't that lovely i love that so and i think they have to do something i mean i know the coaches and the and the managers in, in ontario uh when i was last there that we had to do that too so i think at a baseline pun intended i think they're actually doing a pretty good job of education pretty good job. well i i agree with you um around here the, the appetite for injury prevention is very high. I think partly because the public now understands that concussion, especially, is a brain injury. It's not a ding. We had all kinds of words to describe it. You know, 
uh, yep. getting your bell, bell rung yep. and all that stuff. We don't, we don't use those words anymore. Kids get it. Um, I'm, you know, uh, even at, I just, I was just invited to my old junior high. Can you believe it? Which, <laughs> which is now, you know, the Forest Hill junior high was on Spadina and yep. Denlo roads. Yep. I went there too. So that's where I went. And one of my dear friends, grandson, invited me to speak to his school. And they, all the kids filed into the auditorium that I sat in myself quite a few years ago and listened to me give a talk on concussion. We talked about other brain injuries as well. You know, we use um, we use some strategies. We draw, we put a melon in a helmet and and uh, and uh, and drop it and show that the melon is protected by the helmet. And then we use an unprotected melon and smash it on the floor and we see it splatter. And that drives home the message that helmets protect. Unfortunately, as you probably know, helmets do not protect against concussion and we have to be smarter than that but we have more severe types of brain injuries that we want to prevent uh, as well so um you know kids really understand it now it's it's wonderful so let's I'll i'll let you take a breath for a second uh although there's not much although there are no sports going on right now there actually are quite a few things that you can bet on and while you're waiting at home, there's lots of fun that you can do through betonline.ag with no NBA, NHL, or MLB. Uh, lots of things still to bet on. The NFL draft actually is this week, and there are a million side prop bets on what is going to take place during the bet. Not just who's going to be picked, but how long the picks are going to take, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In addition to that, you can bet on esports, American Idol, Big Brother, the elections, if only that could happen tomorrow. The spelling bee and the 750,000 poker series. They're still fun to be had. Go to betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100 to receive your free welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, betonline.ag and the promo code is MYPOD100. So let me ask you a question because this is something that I'm conflicted on. Um, A lot of kids, a, a big debate around the rink, especially hockey, is on the issue of body checking. Sorry about that. Go ahead. So a lot of debate on body checking. Yeah. And I I have my feet firmly planted on both sides of the fence. On the one one sense, I believe that um, if you're not really going to grow up and play somewhat competitively, the the risk outweighs the benefit and there's a lot of kids that want to play hockey that have no real interest in, in playing physically i'm not saying that's right or wrong but i know a lot of kids right around the age of 13 14 15 will actually stop playing because they're worried about having to go into a corner and get killed um so i understand the push now is not to have contact until kids are older and I wonder many times whether we've actually done ourselves a disservice and whether we should have introduced physical contact 
right from the beginning when they do learn to play. Because I think one of the biggest challenges is the kids don't know how to A, properly give a hit, and B, more importantly, don't know understand how to properly take a hit. Now, I'm not talking about somebody using a stick to, to smash somebody in the head. I'm not talking about an overtly uh, violent action. I'm just talking about how do you position yourself properly to the best of your ability prevent an injury from getting hit? How do you turn your shoulders so that your back isn't, you know, your back is the right way or your head isn't down? Not 100% reduction, but I am curious what your thought is. Is it better to teach from an early age both how to give and receive, or is it better to wait until they're older? Uh, what's your thought? You know, the brain is a fantastic organ. It, some people. <laughs> yeah. It needs to be protected, especially during the growing um, ages. I will never forget a 13-year-old that I saw in the office who had had three concussions in six months, oh, all playing hockey. And he could not remember what he had for breakfast. His memory was severely affected. He was an A student and he ended up failing his year. And I saw him in the office at the end of this six month period of time. And I said, you must never have another hit to the head. And his parents were sitting there. And fortunately, they were completely compliant. And the same with the kid. And the kid was a star player and was targeted. So the whole thing was just terrible. And he loved the game. And he was not happy about having to give it up. So... Fast forward now, about nine years. He has graduated from university. He did recover his memory, but not to the way it was before. Both he and his parents readily acknowledge that he's a different kid than he was when he started. But fortunately, he still has a lot of brain power. So that to me is what happens with body checking. Needless damage to the brain. It's sort of brainless activity to body check. And the game of hockey can be played beautifully with all the value of the game, all the beauty of the game without body checking. And the, the women, women's hockey shows that and the non-contact leagues prove that in spades. You don't need body checking in the game of hockey. Now, I think that probably the appropriate time to introduce body checking, to, to allow kids to body check, is probably at about 17 or 18. 
because by then they will have the skills to really be able to be taught how to take a check. They'll have the agility to fend off a, a check, to skate faster or skate slower, to avoid a check, to know how to turn, to, to have an eye on the whole team. They'll be probably better off at that age if they, might, if they want to go on and play professional hockey then there's ample learning opportunity for them when they reach the age and they'll be reaching that age with intact brains. They'll be better off. I don't, I think the brain is fantastic at being able to learn new stuff. Um, there are lots of adults who learn how to ride a bike when they're 30 and 40. Um, so we're able, you know, the brain can handle that delay in learning a particular activity. And do you think that will ever happen? Do you ever think physical contact uh, will be it's gradual? It's gradually happening. And you know, the concussion era um, has caused parents to rethink whether they want to put their kids in impact type sports. Uh, this 13 year old that I mentioned to you when I told him that he could never go back to hockey and that he had to um, play sports like golf, he started to cry. But he's become a very good golfer and he likes the game of golf. <laughs> so there are, you know, things that can compensate. And um, I think think that the game will be much better off. So just for a second, the game of football as we know it cannot be played without contact unless you're going to play flag football. And I think we're both smart enough, you smarter than I, to know that there is no chance we're going down that path. So, and they're under pressure. The youth, the youth enrollment in call it tackle football and certainly in the United States with the exception of, I think Florida and maybe a couple other Southern States, Texas is way down. What, you know, how do they make, can they make that safer? And even as you think at hockey, are there things that they can do from an equipment perspective that could make it not safe, but safer? Yes. I think, um, I think they can, improve the game of football. And I think they've tried like to reduce the number of contact practices that they have. For example, that's a, that's a good injury prevention strategy. Uh, they can, um, you know, use the Canadian rules, increase the size of the field. You increase the size of the field, you reduce the amount of contact. Okay. In fact, it's too bad we didn't do that in hockey. One of the important strategies that is used in Europe is the bigger, bigger right. rink. And in football, they can use a bigger field, just like they do in Canada. They can have people farther apart at the scrimmage line. Um, and as we mentioned, removing contact from a lot of the practices will also save brains. But in my view, you know, I really have, 
my doubts about whether the game of football can be saved. Hockey can definitely be saved. And, I, and you know, perhaps the problem with me is that I know hockey better than I know football. So maybe you're going to have to ask a better, you know, experienced person in football that same question. Can football be saved? I don't know. So I'd be, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up one Donald S. Cherry in talking to you. Uh, you guys have had an interesting uh, relationship, I would say. Um, I think from my perspective, he went, as he always did, in my opinion, he went too far. Um, I don't think, you know, if you Google your name and his, you get a boatload of content. <laughs> my you know, my sense from listening to you is that you take a very reasonable approach to these things. And anything that we can do to make the game safer, especially for kids, but even now for the pros, should be at least discussed if not considered. And my view is that he took um, your review of his body of work as thrusting all the blame on him. And that's when back in 2009, he went on Hockey Night in Canada, used his pulpit uh, to try and assassinate your character. <laughs> Would you say that's a, an, an accurate assessment? Well, we did have a huge... Uh, difference of opinion over how much violence hockey should tolerate, how much aggression should it tolerate, how many elbows to the head, how many shoulders to the head can we tolerate in hockey? And, you know, he, he made a living on aggression and violence. He put out tapes that poisoned the minds of youngsters about you know, he glorified the big hits. The big hits used to make me cringe because I was looking at it from the perspective of the brain and he was looking at it from the perspective of uh, what he thought was making the game more enjoyable, I guess, for spectators. And, you know, there are spectators who love violence and he preached to that crowd and he was, he was the guru for that crowd of people who would, you know, rise to their feet when there was a fight. I, I used to hide my head when there was a fight because I knew what each blow to the brain would cause. And in fact, uh, I, I met the mother of Don Sanderson, um, who died as a result of a punch to the head in a hockey game. The punch knocked off his helmet. He fell backwards onto the ice. He never woke up. And he died of a single punch to the head. And, you know, fighting in hockey is so stupid. Like, we should not allow it. Anybody who fights in hockey should be ejected from the game. And if you fight again, you should be ejected from the league permanently. There's no place in organized 
sport like hockey, you know, football, basketball, etc., for people uh, being boxers. It just doesn't wash. And and that's what Don Cherry, Don Cherry, you know, put up your dukes. Uh, oh, back away from a fight. Oh, you're a coward. Uh, you know, that, I just don't like that aggression because I know what it does to the brain. Well, I think, I think we can agree that the fighting numbers are definitely trending the right way. You want them to go to zero. They're not at zero, but they're getting pretty close. They are getting close. I like it. I like it. Uh, I'm starting to I'm starting to enjoy the games more than I used to. Because the players are more skilled. Yeah. More so, skilled. So if I if I remember your comment back in the day, it was something to the effect of he's got a I'm my words, he's got a pulpit, he has a stage, he has a microphone. And it would be helpful if he preached more about respect and, and uh, really stood up against, especially hits to the head. And, that would have been lovely. And his interpretation of that, again, my words was that you were blaming him for all the evils of physical violence and concussions in hockey. Does that sound about right? Well, his style of promoting aggression was one of the big enemies. And I think there still is, like, when I go to, it's now called Scotia Place. Yep. When I go and watch the Toronto Maple Leafs um, and a fight breaks out. In the stands or on the ice? Just kidding. And the, fa <laughs> the fans are, like, screaming. They love it. We unfortunately are very flawed individuals. We think of the fight as being you know, part of being brave and uh, standing up for your team and protect, you know, the idea of the, uh, the protector, the, the enforcer on the ice. Uh, by the way, the enforcers are gone. Yep. It's like a thing of the past. You, you, you say the word enforcer now and kids don't even know what you're talking about. So that just shows you how we can change. So, um, you know, I think that uh, what Don Cherry stood for, what to me was um, injury, injury and more injury. And uh, so we never, I, I actually wanted to speak to him and he, he didn't call me back when I left messages. Well, it's interesting. He, uh, he's lost his pulpit. And I saw, I check in on his Twitter account from time to time. And I noticed this morning or yesterday that he tweeted condolences and prayers for the female RCMP officer who lost her life in Nova Scotia in the shooting. Uh, he was always very good at that and should be uh, patted on the back and he should get credit for that. I did find it surprising. I went back and looked at three months of his Twitter posts, not one single mention of the coronavirus or COVID-19 or anything like that. 
just interesting. He, you know, he picks and chooses when he wants to take a stand on something. And he's been, I think, very surprisingly quiet. And I'll admit, I don't listen to his podcast, but uh, he's been surprisingly quiet at a time where a voice like his, if nothing else, just to support the first responders would be welcome. That's my opinion. Yeah. Well, you know, at one time he actually did do uh, a poster for us. For It was back in the days of Think First, which was yep. an organization that I started in Canada um, to, to promote injury prevention in sports. And he appeared in a poster, I believe it was with Dougie Gilmore, uh, trying to teach kids about the hazards of hitting from behind. So he did recognize that that was uh, a maneuver that should be eliminated, and he did he did help us. So as you said, it, it's uh, you know he has a few redeeming features, but his his preaching for violence in general just didn't wash. Well, it's been a a long journey for you. Doc, from uh, photo ball boy at Maple Leaf Gardens uh, to West Prep, Algonquin Park. Uh, it's good to see you're keeping well. Your, your voice is always appreciated. And uh, hopefully you continue to be able to focus on people who are in injuries that, you know, come in cars and the stuff and the type of stuff that you typically saw from sports goes down. Um, hopefully we, we heed your advice and, and we, we smarten up a little bit. I don't know what's going to happen with, with hockey. My kids are now getting to the point where they're almost out of it. So my involvement will obviously go down. Um, but I think you're right. I think, it, I think we emulate what we see live and on TV. I think the pro game has gotten much more skill focused. Uh, I think that's a good thing. Um, and I think, you know, the violent side of things, I think you can still have a physical component to the game without it being violent, if that makes any sense at all. Really appreciate you taking some time and please continue to be well. Well, thank you, Jonah. Enjoyed talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.